Welcome. I'm Sebastian Mafud, and you're listening to WCAT Radio, the on-air wing of En Route Books and Media, bringing you the dulcet sounds of Catholic wisdom. Welcome to The Open Door. This is uh, Christopher Zandra sitting in for our August host and co-host, Jim Hannink and Mario Ramos-Reyes, who are both probably now, maybe not now, but sometime today will be drinking wine, wearing berets, and talking personalism at the Jacques Maritain Jamboree in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So they've, uh, I am your, normally your, your panelist, and I'm sitting in as host today. Our guest today is Thomas Stork, noted author um, who has written a number of different things on distributism, Catholic culture, politics, you name it. He's written several books, and, um, including um, the Catholic Milieu, and uh, the uh, most recently, the An Economics of Justice and Charity, but other books include From Christendom and be- to Americanism and Beyond, and e- the Foundation of a Catholic Political Order. Um, Mr. Stork has also written for a number of publications, including the New Oxford Review, the late great Shalem and other um, um, Inside the Vatican and others. Today we're going to be discussing the interesting topic of the use and abuse of labels in politics. Um, you know, such things as conservative and liberal, socialist and capitalist. And uh, this is a topic I know um, Tom is very interested in, and I, as I am as well. We've been discussing it for now for about 20-some years. So hopefully the fruit of those conversations will come out in this broadcast. And as we always do, we will begin with prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of thy faithful, and enkindle them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy Spirit, and they shall be created, and thou shalt renew the face of the earth. Let us pray. O God, who taught the hearts of thy faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit, grant us that same Spirit to be truly wise, and ever to rejoice in his consolation, with the same Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, Tom, let's begin um, just maybe a plug some of your writing, which is always a good thing for authors, and by the time this um, our discussion ends, we'll probably we'll be so deep into it and so excited about the topics that we will forget to bring this up. So do you have anything in the offing right now, um, or new publications or something that we can expect anytime soon? Well, I have two, uh, there are a couple articles that are, uh, in, and that are slated for publication, but I guess the two main things are two books that are coming out either later this year or early next year. One of them is a joint book with uh, a writer that I know you know, John Madai, uh, about the foundations of uh, the tentative title is Faith, Reason, and History. It's about the, the foundations of uh, the act of faith and, by, and, and, and the um, reasons that we believe in, in, in the Catholic faith and so on. And it's a series of letters back and forth between uh, John and me. And the other is a book which I'm editing about the the relationship between the uh, Catholic faith and the environment or the natural world. It has a number of uh, very fine contributors, including yourself, Christopher, and um, Padre Edmund Waldstein uh, from Austria, and uh, a number of others. And um, so I'm looking forward to that. That that mm, will be. As I say, the end of this year or maybe early next year, depending on how things go. Good. Yeah, hopefully um, when that happens, when that book comes out, we can have you on to discuss it, because 
I think the topic of the environment is, of course, of intense interests, interest to people, both uh, on all on all sides. But uh, let's get into our actual topic for today. When we, when we talk about labeling and politics, I mean, we all know what we're talking about. Um, recently, we've been um, regaled with the whole phenomenon of the democratic primaries, and we've heard terms like socialist flung about and moderate and um, progressive and regressive, a number of different terms that are used in politics. Um, you know, Bernie Sanders calls himself a socialist. Elizabeth Warren calls herself a progressive who is capitalist to the, to the core, that type of thing. Um, I know from conversations we've had before, you um, look upon such labeling with a jaundiced eye, as, as do I. But in general, <clears throat> isn't labeling or naming things natural to man? I mean, isn't it natural for us to want to identify ourselves by, t- by titles? Oh, yes. Yeah, my, my main beef with the labeling is that, they're, is that they're confused and inexact, and I have no problem, for example, with the use of labels if we're careful about them, but we're not careful about them. Most people will throw around terms like socialist or capitalist, and, they, and if you ask them, well, what exactly do you mean by that, they would have a little problem, bit of problem defining them because they don't really know. Or they would use some superficial criterion that can easily be disproved. Like they would say, oh, capitalism means private ownership. Well, if capitalism means private ownership, then capitalism has existed since Adam and Eve were in the garden. Um, and, uh, but, so my problem really is not so much with labeling, but with inexact labeling. So can and, you and of course, a, go ahead. Go ahead. Go, no, go ahead. No, of course, uh, the two the two term and the two terms that probably at least in the United States are most problematic in the way they're used are socialism and liberalism because those terms are are used uh, in very inexact and sloppy ways. Capitalism, too, for that matter. Mm-hmm. And we'll get into all those different. We want to touch on those terms in particular to bring some clarity to the use of them. Um, can you give examples of what you might think are beneficial labeling? Well, um, as you said, it's natural for the human for the human mind to classify. So, if you find a number of people who believe the same or similar things, it's perfectly legitimate to say, "Oh, those are X X people," assuming that the term is reasonable. I mean, if you remember, you know well that in ancient Rome, the one particular party called themselves the Boni, the good ones, and that was rather. Uh, tendentious appropriation of the term. If we're the good ones, the other ones are who? The bad ones. <laughs> so um, that's not a good use of, of labels. But if you can find, and, and of course every, every, every group wants to um, pick a label that's, that has a good connotation for it, and you, you, know, you can't blame them in a way. But um, uh, so um, as I say, if you, if you find a group of people who have similar things, then you want to give them a label. But let's make sure that the label is, as far as we can get it, accurate, and that it really brings out something uh, determinative about what they believe, and that we understand why it is, not just some sloppy use of the word uh, of a word. And two, I guess there, there are times, right, when sometimes uh, a very specific label, one that has meaning, needs further qualification, or it seems to me 
perhaps seems to need further qualification. I'm thinking in particular phenomena which has occurred, of course, since the, 19, since the Second Vatican Council. Uh, I think before the Council, if one called oneself a Catholic, that would have a very definite meaning to people. Uh, but people felt compelled after the Council to begin to um, add epithets to that, right? You know, you become a conservative Catholic or you become an uh, orthodox Catholic or a traditional Catholic or a progressive Catholic. And well, that was understandable since discipline broke down in the church after the council, and it wasn't uh, it wasn't unprecedented either. You'll recall that uh, Benedict XV, the Pope during World War One, warned against uh, Catholics giving themselves a label, labeling themselves like that, and said, "Just be Catholic. Just strive to be everything that that means." But nevertheless, I can't really blame people for um, differentiating. Uh, among Catholics, because the, the the church is so polarized today that it's understandable that people are going to want to qualify that term Catholic, and to some extent, I accept that's acceptable. Right, but yeah, it shouldn't it shouldn't need to be acceptable. I agree. It, it's simply uh, if you say someone says I'm a Catholic, it should uh, have a definite meaning. Yes, I accept all that the church teaches, and I I, I try to live according to it. But um, uh, that's not the case today. I guess I guess the, um, what labels are essentially right are short or shorthand ways of explaining who you are. So, um, if we followed Pope Benedict the Fifteenth to the to the letter on that, we would have to say, "I'm a Catholic," and and what I mean by that is this: every time we introduce the term, is just so people know exactly where we stand, which is inconvenient. Yes, yes, exactly. So there's nothing wrong with labeling. As I say, it's a matter of the inexact and sloppy labeling that we engage in. What effect do you think labeling has on people who use it? Well, there's a tendency to to make um, words and uh, kind of a... I mean, words are supposed to stand for concepts, and words are supposed to stand for things, whether or not they're concrete things like rock or even ideologies or philosophies. But um, the words themselves can take on a life of their own, so that, for example, people, will, if, if you introduce an idea today, people will say, well, is that liberal or is that conservative? And instead of evaluating the idea or the policy proposal on its own merits, as soon as they decide for themselves that's liberal or that's conservative, they'll dismiss it or they'll embrace it, depending on their predilections. <laughs> that's kind of silly, instead of actually evaluating the idea and saying, oh, this might work, this might not work, and so on. What do you say to that? Maybe labels they they can they can express what we think or what we think we are, but they can also thrust us into a context. What I mean is this: is um, they can uh, even even terms that one might think are meaningless, at least in terms of their very specific meaning. And I would I would include in that to a large extent terms in our in our in the United States, like conservative and liberal. Nevertheless, they, they do shackle us to a set of presuppositions about the nature of man and society um, because they put us within a certain context. You know what I'm saying? You understand what I'm getting at there? Well, I, I think so, but if I'm understanding you correctly, uh, I, would, I, I would reiterate what I said before, that there's nothing wrong with labels, provided that they're accurate labels, I mean, there's nothing wrong with situating yourself within a certain view of 
of the universe of, of the nature of man, uh, provided that is tolerably well thought out, uh, or am I misunderstanding you? Well, I guess in this, in this way, I mean, we'll discuss this more in detail when we get to particular terms, but even uh, Catholics, for instance, who should know that, for instance, the terms liberal and conservative don't apply, as used in the, in the American context, don't really apply to them. Never, and they might even have a good understanding of where the church stands on a number of different social issues and understand that those cannot be neatly packaged as conservative or liberal. Nevertheless, in using those terms, um, operate within a certain philosophical milieu, if you will, a social milieu, which tends to, uh, tends to habituate them to even maybe thinking in terms of that milieu. Oh yeah, that's that's true. But I think it's mostly because the the majority of Catholics, I might I might even say the vast majority, haven't really thought through these issues very deeply, and 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 so they, for example, they'll they'll say I'm a conservative or I'm a liberal or progressive, and their their primary identity there is being a conservative or a liberal, and the Catholicism is just icing on the cake at best. Um, but they're primarily identifying as a part of this political cultural block called liberalism or conservatism, and um, I don't think it's. I think in many cases for them, it's, it's they don't even think about the, the discrepancies, or they don't even understand them, or they're not aware of the fact that the faith uh, is is a. To use this term that's so popular among Protestants right now, is a worldview. It's a, it's an encompassing way of looking at everything. And we, uh, if we have, if we are Catholics, and we and we try to have a Catholic worldview, then it should seep down to everything we think about everything, pretty much. Uh, it should be derived from that. So I guess if we are, are Catholics in that sense, we have to do a lot more explaining <laughs> as to what we stand for than other people would. Well, yeah, and, and and I mean, people aren't even catechizing the basic, basic truths of of the uh, catechism or the commandments, and um, so it's not surprising that they haven't uh, begun to think about how their Catholic faith applies to politics. I mean, before the before the council, there was a lively intellectual ferment in the church, which sought to do this exactly, but I don't know. To what extent it, 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 uh, the average Catholic in the pew uh, ever heard of uh, ever heard of these efforts, or if so, uh, uh, was affected by them? I suspect that there was some some effect and some 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 uh, opinions that were held because of this, but I don't think it was um, completely white, completely encompassed every Catholic by any means. I imagine two labels. If one calls oneself a label, especially if it's a label that's unfamiliar, that it can it can be uh, opening to conversation as to what one means by that label. I'm thinking, for instance, as we always we always Jim always points out on this show that the the hosts and the, and the panelists, who's I'm normally the panelist, are all members of the American Solidarity Party. So the question is, what do you call yourself when you're a member of the American Solidarity Party? Solidarity Party. So you can call yourself a Solidarian or a Solidarist. And if people say, are you Republican or Democrat? And you say, no, I'm a Solidarist. That would be an opening to um, explanation as to what you mean by that term. 
That's true. Just like distributism, I'm 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 a distributist. I've written quite a bit about distributism, and although some people seem to think they know what it means, and they don't, uh, nonetheless, when you introduce that term, enough people say, "What's that?" That you have an opportunity to uh, explain yourself. Mm-hmm. Now, if one were to ask you as to what 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 you would call yourself in terms of your view of the social order. What what label would you use, if any? Well, this may, this might seem to be vague, too vague, but I would say I'm a Catholic. I accept the Church's teachings on on the social order, and I apply them as a distributist, because distributism, it, while entirely consonant with Catholic social teaching, it, uh, is a particular application of Catholic social teaching. So I would say I'm a Catholic and I'm a distributist. And I think that would be that would that might seem as I say too vague, but that would be the, the how I would answer. And then if someone asked me to explain that, then I would then I would be more than happy to do so, <laughs> as you've done many times, both, yeah. both in word and print. Okay, spoken word and print, I should say. Okay, good. Maybe we should uh, start digging into some of the particular terms. Uh, I don't know if this is the proper order to go in, but we can um, always tie things into it, the proper principles as we go along. Um, I don't know if this is the open door is not always an issue-driven show, but we have been regaled, as I said, in the past several weeks and months with, with um, controversy over a political candidate who calls himself a socialist. And I've seen, I've, I've heard people. I, uh, one particular commentator I know who is generally right-headed, nevertheless, fuming that if um, if Bernie Sanders really was a socialist, he should he should consult what happened with socialism in places like Cuba, um, Soviet Union, the Eastern Bloc, Venezuela, and places like that. Uh, which I think, to my mind, does misunderstand is a misunderstanding of what. Sanders even means by socialism, but the term socialism we we use it all the time, we throw it around, and people assume they know what it means, but it's yet kind of a vague and uncertain term, isn't it? Oh, exceedingly, and it, it, it's complicated by the fact that not everybody who calls himself a socialist is necessarily even a socialist, but they're using that term because they don't know what else to do. If they uh, see the the grievous problems with capitalism, for example, the British Labour Party always called itself socialist, and yet it was the party that traditionally in in, in Great Britain Catholics voted for, and this was actually in in the nineteen uh, in the nineteen twenties the uh, English bishops actually said, well. The kind of socialism that the Labour Party uh, espouses is not the kind that's condemned by the church. So you can go ahead and vote for the Labour Party if you want to. So here were people who called themselves socialists, but weren't really socialists. But you get into some problems. But yeah, this is a this is one of the most slippery terms there is. And the reason for that is that the the if you're talking about real socialists now, let's say the the um, economic proposals that socialists espouse are not necessarily wrong. Socialism, however, is uh, loaded with uh, philosophical baggage, which I'll talk about in a second, that vitiates it. But to 
start out with the economic proposals, the most complete discussion of socialism by the Church was in Pius XI's uh, 1931 encyclical, Quadragesimo Anno. And uh, he notes that when Leo XIII wrote Rem Novarum back in 1891, socialism was pretty much one thing. It had a particular point of view, and it was against private property, or at least uh, productive private property. And then he, Pius XI says, in our time, i.e. 1931, socialism has divided into two parts. One part is communism, which had already taken power in, in Russia. And, of course, no Catholic with any sense at all could, could espouse that. But then he talks about the other, social, other um, section, and I'm quoting here now. He says, the other section, which has kept the name socialism, is surely more moderate. It not only professes the rejection of violence, but modifies and tempers to some degree, if it does not reject entirely, the class struggle and the abolition of private ownership. Uh, socialism inclines uh, toward, and in a certain measure, approaches the truths which Christian tradition has always held sacred. And here's a, the next, and I'm still quoting, and then goes on, for it cannot be denied that its demands at times come very close, come very near those that Christian reformers of society justly insist upon. So what Pius was pointing out then was that the actual economic proposals of, of the moderate socialists of his time often uh, had very little, uh, often approached very closely to those that the Catholic Church was insisting upon. That's the first point to get. And this is, true, this is still the case with uh, the socialists. If you look, for example, at the website of the uh, Democratic Socialists of America, uh, they, they talk about what they want, worker-owned cooperatives, publicly-owned enterprises managed by workers and consumer representatives uh, are the two main things they, they highlight. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with those, um, in theory at least, from a Catholic point of view. I mean, uh, cooperatives are something that the Church has, has long uh, espoused, and um, publicly-owned enterprises managed by workers and consumer representatives. Pius XI himself says in the same cyclical, in the very next paragraph, certain kinds of property ought to be reserved to the state, since they carry with them a dominating power so great that they cannot, without great danger to the general welfare, be entrusted to private individuals. Because economic power uh, can be as strong or even stronger than political power. So we, we don't fool ourselves thinking, oh, we have democracy, we're free, we can vote for whomever we want. If the, if the economic powers are so, um, are so dominating, then they kind of vitiate the political power. So that's the first point. The first point is, say, the economic proposals of socialism are not necessarily wrong. Some of their proposals are perfectly consistent and can, can be espoused by a Catholic. Then the second, but the second point is people will say, okay, well, wait a minute. Yeah, can you this, can we touch on the first point first? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. There's a lot. There's a lot there. I think that needs to be unpacked. Um, when you talk about the economic proposals of socialism, you're not necessarily talking about the economic proposals, say, of Louis Blanc or even Proudhon or Marx or Lenin, right? No, I said I'm talking about what Pius XI calls the moderate socialists. Okay, and so the not, the, the socialists were not moderate. Like I think of Louis Blanc, he talks about complete public ownership of all the means of production. I think that's maybe important, too, in terms of property, where it isn't right to say when we're talking about 
private property in this sense. We're talking about private productive property, not one's socks. Well, yeah, although I think in the Soviet Union, for example, I don't know if you owned your own apartment, probably not, but you probably guess you owned your own socks. (laughs) (laughs) But but, uh, I don't know about, but but the, the point is, you can find socialism as a, as a movement going back to the early 19th century has taken many forms, has had many spokesmen, both Marxist and non-Marxist socialism, and you can find all kinds of things that these people have said, uh, like Prudhomme, who said property is theft. Uh, well, no, uh, not the kind of the kind of social the kind of socialism that is alive today, the kind represented by the Democratic Socialists of America and. and and perhaps by Bernie Sanders, and I think perhaps because it's not really clear that he's really a socialist, uh, uh, is is the moderate kind of socialism that Pius XI was talking about, and just keep talking about oh how you know tar- tarring it with the with the brush of Marx is is not really fair, or with some of the socialist regimes around the world. Well, socialism, as I said, takes all kinds of forms. So you've had a number of European countries that have had socialist parties in power. They haven't instituted the gulag. They haven't instituted uh, confiscation of property. They've instituted certain uh, reforms to, uh, to like, uh, universal health care and protection of workers' jobs, which are something a Catholic can perfectly accept and, and actually, in my opinion, are consonant with Catholic social teaching and, and almost demanded by it. Well, yeah, I mean, um, I think it's an Evangelio Vitae Pope John Paul II said something to the effect of health care should be very inexpensive or, or free. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the idea that you know, the, the, in the United States we have this individualism, which is like every man for himself or maybe every man for his family, but there's very little sense of the solidarity that we need as a, as a country uh, in order to take care of all, all of ourselves, one for all, all for one in a way. And um, uh, so socialism, the, the, the idea, some of these ideas that socialists espouse are, in fact, simply solidarity ideas, taking care of ourselves as a group, realizing that, you know, we don't, we're not always in competition with each other. We don't need to be in competition with each other. Uh, competition can, can serve useful purposes at times, but it's not the fundamental reality of the social order. Right, right. Okay, good. Yeah, um, so the, your second point you were going to make. Okay, well, when people hear when 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 people when I talk about quadrigesimo, for example, and I quote the favorable things that the Pope says, or at least somewhat favorable that he says about the socialist economic ideas, people will say some people, the people who are a little bit informed, will say, "Wait a minute, that's the same encyclical where Pius XI says no Catholic can be a socialist," and that's true. Uh, well, what does it mean by that? Well, he explains it uh, pretty well. Uh, and um, uh, uh, if you look at it, it's clear. Some people will just quote this out of context um, and, and not even mention the things I mentioned. Well, they'll, they'll quote the section here where it says, uh, whether considered as a doctrine or an historical fact or a movement, if it remains truly socialism, even after it has yielded to truth and justice on the points which we have mentioned, cannot be reconciled with the teachings of the Catholic Church because this concept of society itself is utterly foreign to Christian truth. So what does he mean by that? He says the, pro- the fundamental problem with socialism is that it sees 
the uh, human society as in merely a materialistic way, that the purpose of coming together into society and the state is the material ends, uh, you know, the production of more goods and um, basically a, um, a life of materialism, uh, more and more piles of goods. And that's what is fundamentally at odds with the Catholic faith. Because if you look at the, um, the teaching of the church, and especially as expressed and elaborated by Leo XIII in, in the face of the modern world, Leo XIII is clear that society exists not primarily to promote stuff, goods, but to promote virtue and to guide us toward our heavenly, uh, heavenly life, eternal life in heaven. Now, it doesn't mean that, uh, that we don't need goods. We do need goods and services. Uh, obviously, God created us that way. But society uh, is not primarily a, a means of simply making stuff uh, and making stuff more efficiently. But the socialists, the true socialists, insisted that the, um, they were going to outproduce capitalism by, uh, by socializing the production in one way or the other, whether moderately or, or in a communist way, and we were gonna, they were going to beat capitalism at their own game. Now, this is why socialism is wrong. Now, the curious thing is, if you look at the propaganda that has come out uh, from the United States since World War II, why have we, why have we for the most part, why have we uh, tried to justify capitalism on the very same grounds, namely that capitalism can outproduce socialism? We've talked over and over again about it lifted people out of poverty. It's, uh, it, it produces all these goods. It, and so on and so on and so on, and never anything about, well, it helps people toward virtue, it helps, it guides us toward eternal life, anything like that. So socialism and capitalism are, in a sense, tarred with the same brush <coughs> in the sense that they have tried to justify themselves by the same grounds. And the interesting thing, and interesting again, is that in John Paul II, in um, Chandesimus Anus, makes that point explicitly. He talks about how the... Um, the founders of, of capitalism in the 18th century, like the physiocrats in, in France or the Adam Smith and so on, uh, were um, essentially materialists and even atheists, not, not, not necessarily explicitly so. They may not have understood the imp implications of their own thought, but that their, their ideas were uh, just as materialistic and atheistic as the socialist ideas if you, if you drilled down to their, down through them. So I guess it's it's hidden by the fact, at least in the United States, that we are political leaders, and many of the leaders of society talk about God, right? And whereas, for instance, in the Soviet Union, they wouldn't have spoken about God, and I dare say, probably many European countries, those who call them socialists, don't talk about God. But that, that's that, true. That, that talk about God is really right. It, it's simply, it's not proposing God as the purpose or the knowledge of God, or union with God, as the purpose of the social order. It's simply a kind of icing on the cake, or a kind of a, 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 an approval that, of, of our system. God, so our politicians say, don't say, God bless America. It's almost like uh, simply a statement. It's more like a statement. It's not a, it's not a wish it's, or a, a prayer. It's more like God does bless America. But it doesn't really go much farther than that. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you completely. 
the um, the role of religion in the United States, of course, is a huge topic, but um, by and large, I, I would say it's been fairly superficial, and and we like to talk about the religiosity, how America is less secularized than Europe, but I think in, in many important ways, it's the opposite, that the United States is more secularized than Europe, uh, not that Europe is in good shape, but uh, the United States is more secularized in some important ways, because the the uh, profession of the Christian faith or of any religion doesn't really mean anything. It's, it's as you said, icing on the cake. The fundamental thing is the adherence to certain political ideals, which uh, which are seen as as important. And 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 the privatization. I mean, religion is privatized in the United States. In fact, that's that's written right into the Constitution in the First Amendment, which says that the state basically has nothing to do with religion. Uh, Congress don't make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Religion is something that you can do by yourself, more or less, as long as you don't get in the way of the state, but um, the state has no interest in it. Which is, as you pointed out, is a whole other topic, which hope maybe we can explore in a future day. Um, I guess it would be right to say, can I summarize what you've said in this way, that when we're talking about uh, the evil, or what might be considered what's, what's wrong with socialism, and indeed what's wrong with our system, is a question of means and ends. That when we're dealing with socialism, at least some of the means that are proposed by socialists, say, say for instance, the public ownership of certain industries, not of all, but of certain, uh, the and other uh, universal health care, even that provided you know by t- to the state and the like. Those are the means. When those means in themselves. Um, are not bad things. They might even be good things. But the end for which socialism tends to propose, the end which socialism tends to propose for society is what's wrong. Yeah, like, and, and, the, and the spirit with, with, with which it proposes that. I mean, you can find, the curious thing is you can find several ideologies that will propose similar things about, about a particular issue and yet they can be motivated by widely varying spirits, uh, whether they be communist, socialist, even fascist. Uh, they might all, yes, we want to do X, but why do you want to do X? Very different. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, why then, one wonders, if, if socialism could have such very different meanings, why do all these people call themselves socialists? Well, I think it's I think it's because well, in some cases it's because you know socialism is we don't see it in the United States, but back if you go back to Europe about a hundred years ago or a little over a hundred years ago, socialism was a very well uh, well organized movement. They had well, you may call them Sunday schools, uh, study groups, you know, youth camps, youth groups, uh, picnics for families, and so on. It was trying to be a counter, be like an anti-church, counter-church, to to uh, take the place of, of the traditional Catholic festivals and Catholic study groups and Catholic uh, intellectual circles and so on. And so some people, uh, I won't say in the United States, because I think most people don't even know about that, but some people throughout the world want to fully identify with that historic socialism. That's why uh, when um, Pius XI says, whether socialism be considered as a movement or as a historical fact. Otherwise, he's referring to the fact that there is this this uh, 
in history, there was this socialist movement. And some people want to identify with that. And they, they I would say, okay, they're truly socialists. They, they, they realize, at least somewhat, what socialism historically has stood for, and they embrace that. They embrace the materialism of socialists. Um, and I think a lot of the European socialists would be like that. I mean, it's, the curious thing is, when you had these European, some of the, some of the European countries, like the Latin countries, socialist parties would come to power, and they would make a truce with capitalism, the Grand Compromise, uh, it was called, because they realized either they, they didn't have the strength to, to fundamentally change the economic order, or they didn't really want to. But what they never compromised on was attacking the family, attacking the church, and attacking marriage, and so on like that. So they would be the true socialists. Um, and, and what I said before about their about them would be true, that, that they're fundamentally philosophically erroneous, but their, their economic ideas may or may not be good. But in the United States, for example, I think people, some people will call themselves socialists simply because they, they, they're not capitalists and they don't know what else to call themselves. We don't have a robust intellectual tradition of, of a critique of capitalism here, and most everybody's heard of socialism, so they'll say, oh, I guess I'm not a capitalist, I guess I'm a socialist. I remember once talking to somebody, um, uh, he was a Protestant, but he was teaching at a Catholic college. I said, well, I'm not a, I'm not a capitalist. I don't support capitalism. He said, oh, you mean you're a socialist? <laughs> no, I said, I'm a distributist. <laughs> well, what's that? Um, so people who have never heard of distributism or solidarism uh, will feel like, oh, I guess I have to label myself with some terms, so I'm a socialist. But they don't really understand the... Uh, the philosophical roots of socialism. I think this was true even of the British Labour Party, which probably contained some genuine socialists, but a lot of people who just, well, you know, if I'm not a capitalist, I guess i got to be a socialist. Well, I guess in a certain sense, I mean, when people call, say, Bernie Sanders a socialist, and I don't think he is in the sense of a real socialist in terms of uh, wanting to have public ownership for instance, of all the means of production. I mean, that's not, certainly not where he's coming from. But, uh, but in terms of the, the secularism and the materialism we've been talking about, he is a socialist. But then again, um, who isn't in that sense? Yeah, that's exactly. In, in the United States, um, this is part of our national philosophy, if you will. Uh, even a lot of, I, mean, I wouldn't say even, uh, most, most Christians, if asked, why why do we have the social order why why do why is mankind uh live in society they would they would say oh because we need we need uh to have each other in order to make stuff in order to produce in order to provide material goods and if you said well does society have anything to do with leading man to virtue they would say oh no that's the job of religion society doesn't lead society has nothing to do with virtue and that's the job of religion yeah, and, and it's essentially it's essentially private in that. And yeah, and so in a sense, everybody and almost almost everybody in the United States is guilty of that same sin, <coughs> intellectual error, I should say, that Pius XI identified in socialism. Uh, its concept of society is utterly foreign to Christian truth, as he said, uh, quoting, uh, because they don't realize that society has. Even though, even though, yes, society and the church, the state and the church are not the same thing, and I'm not, I'm not recommending a theocracy here. I know you're not either. But on the other hand, uh, the law 
and, and, and society do have a role in promoting virtue and even in orienting us toward eternal life. Not the same way that the church does, but uh, it, it's, it, it's, um, it's still part of the fundamental purpose. In fact, the most important fundamental purpose of society, as Thomas Aquinas said, the purpose of law is to lead us to virtue. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so in the United States, everybody is tried with that brush, which is what John Paul was pointing out in Gentessim uh, was when he discussed the historical roots of, of capitalism in the 19th, in the 18th century. Right. Yeah, it's interesting that, uh, if my memory serves me correctly, Aristotle himself saw the end of life in society as virtue. That certainly wasn't inspired by any Christian sense. <laughs> no, I mean, the, if, if we think, well, it's part of it goes back, of course, to the, here's another big topic, which we don't have time to go into today, but what is the natural state of the human being? Now, we're all familiar with the, with the term, at least, if not the concept, of the social contract, and, uh, an ideological construct going back to the uh, 17th, 18th centuries, whereby the, whether it meant literally or figuratively, individual human beings came together to form society and gave up part of their freedom in order to gain the benefits of society. And this is, this is a big concept, big topic, I should say. Uh, but if, if our, true, our true natural state is an asocial uh, individualism, then, now, then obviously the only reason we have we come together is because we can't uh, produce stuff individually. You know, we, can have, we can't have a factory by myself, uh, but I can still pray by myself. So that's, that's the fundamental idea that we have in the United States, um, that the religion is something, yeah, you can do that on your own, you don't need anybody else, or maybe just those who want voluntarily associate with you. But... Um, the, the state is something different. The state is purely material. Right. Whereas Aristotle uh, held that the natural state, and St. Thomas too, for that matter, and then the Catholic Church, the natural state of, of the human race is to live in community. And if this is true, then the most important thing about us, namely virtue and the attainment of eternal life, can hardly be a subject that the community has no interest in. Yeah, I guess... It, it, uh, this brings us to some other terms that we use, I think. And it, it shows, I guess, in some ways, the fundamental meaninglessness of these terms. And these terms to which I refer to, of course, are conservative and liberal in the United States. Is that we, we, we tend to think that these are, these are terms which are diametrically opposed to one another, or they represent ideas which are diametrically opposed to one another. But it seems that in terms of what we're, what both sides propose is the end of society, that they're actually quite identical. Yeah, as many people have pointed out, what we call conservatives in the United States are simply conservative liberals. Uh, uh, as, as somebody said just the other day, uh, they, well, they, they're a little bit like John Stuart Mill, uh, some of them liking his economic ideas more than the conservatives, some of them liking his social ideas more than liberals, so-called. Liberalism is a perfectly good term and is actually used in most of the world in a, a meaning quite different from the way it's used in the United States. So I'm not, I'm not willing to give up the term liberal because I think 
uh, it has a good meaning. But for an American, for a citizen of the U.S., it is an extremely confusing meaning. And I, I'm not, I don't know to tell you the truth. I think it was in the 1930s that the term began to be uh, perverted in its meaning in the U.S., but now it's, it's hopeless. It's hopelessly um, confused. So liberalism, if you want to look at the history of Western civilization, liberalism is the um, broad revolution against Christian teaching on the social order that had obtained in the Middle Ages that began with the around the time of the Protestant Reformation, was furthered by the Reformation, of course, and then in the 18th century began to take on an ideological context or, or justification uh, in, in people like the physiocrats and Adam Smith and so on. And, and it basically has triumphed in most of the modern world. But it was not simply an economic doctrine. It was a whole doctrine of freedom. So free thought, free love, free market. There's a, there's a reason why they all have the adjective free there because they're, they're all uh, the results and the products of liberalism. So we in the United States now tend to think, oh, a liberal is, a liberal is somebody who uh, maybe favors free markets or, I mean, free, free, free love or free thought, but not free markets. That's the conservatives. Right. No, that's, that's not true. They're all, they're all liberal ideas. And the fact that we have in the United States two liberal parties, the conservatives and the liberals, or the uh, liberal groups, I should say, the conservatives and the liberals, they're both taking parts of historic liberalism and dividing it up among themselves and fighting among themselves when they basically agree. Yeah. Yeah, that's... Um so uh, let's look at another term. We, we've touched you touched on it a bit already, but uh, the term capitalism. <laughs> yes, that's a very interesting term. Uh, a few years ago, I wrote an article for the journal Faith and Reason that was later reprinted in a book called um, "Beyond Capitalism and Socialism" about capitalism and distributism, and I did a, a, a lot of research on what historians, economic historians, and e economists said. Well, how they define capitalism. And I found there was no consensus about what capitalism was. Some, some thought it was this, some thought it was that, some basically threw up their hands and said it can't be defined. Well, the best, the best characterization or definition of capitalism that I think there is comes from that same um, encyclical uh, which I've quoted so many times, and which indeed is the, the crown jewel of papal social teaching, Quadjesmo And Pius XI talks about capitalism, and he says that he calls it that economic system wherein, generally, some provide capital while others provide labor for a joint economic activity. So capitalism is characterized not by private ownership, not by uh, private economic enterprise, but by the separation of ownership and work. That is the keynote, the key point of capitalism. Now, let me hasten to add that in and of itself, the separation of ownership and work is not evil. If it were evil, then it would be wrong for me to hire a teenager, next-door teenager, to mow my lawn, because he's providing the labor and I'm providing uh, the capital, at least in terms of wages. That's not wrong. What the problem with capitalism is 
when this separation of ownership and work becomes pervasive, when it becomes when the whole of society becomes characterized by the whole economy, I should say, becomes characterized by a lot of problems result. And if I may, I'll go into two of them right now. One of them is that the owners of capitalism, for the owners of capital, labor is an expense item, and an item they always want to lower their expenses. So what do they do? They try to keep wages low. They they try to um, fight against um, raising the minimum wage, say, and if necessary, they'll move their facility to another another place. They'll move the facility to another place um, where they can hire people more cheaply to another cheaper part of the country or to a foreign country or something like that. So this this separation of ownership and work. Uh, the, the first negative thing it, that flows from it is that the capitalist will see labor as an expense item, and they will uh, necessarily naturally want to keep their expenses low. The second bad thing that flows from the separation of ownership and work is that the owners of capital are one step at least removed from the actual productive process, i.e. they're not really uh, working at the producing a good or a service. They're owning the capital and others are producing the good or service. And the result of this, there's a tendency, I won't say it's an absolute compulsion by no means, but there's a tendency for them to view economic activity simply as whatever sells is good. We don't really care. We don't have any pride in our workmanship anymore because we don't do any work. Uh, at least we don't produce any productive work. So we don't care about the pride in workmanship that a craftsman would have. We just want to produce something that will sell. And how do we get it to sell? Well, one big thing is advertising. We'll convince people they need it. Whether they do or whether they don't, we'll convince them that they do. And um, this is the, um, this is the, these are the two major criticisms that can be made of capitalism, understood in the way I'm using it. But again, I have to insist, I've always, when I talk to people about capitalism, when I write about it, I want to say, this is what I mean by capitalism. I don't mean private ownership. I don't mean uh, private enterprise, I mean the separation of ownership and work. And if this is what capitalism is, this is why it's bad. I guess a third evil, at least most who call themselves conservatives, would find as an evil. In order to keep capitalism just and keep, in order to keep society from too much suffering, you need to have a strong and robust government. Well, yeah. And the, the, with that, yeah. yeah, the odd thing is the odd thing is that if you want to have a just capitalism, you need to have a stronger state than you would with, say, distributism, because distributism doesn't have that built-in uh, anti-social, uh, anti, anti-justice uh, thing that capitalism has. So capitalism is kind of promotes capitalism promotes evil because it works with the fallen tend- the tendencies of our fallen human nature to uh, exacerbate uh, the greed and so on of, of human beings, their desire to dominate and so on. Distributism doesn't obviously do away with original sin, it can't, but it doesn't make use of, of the ill effects of original sin. It tries to simply uh, work with the good aspects of human nature, uh, and it obviously is not going to be 100% successful. Nothing is 100% successful in this fallen world. Right, right. So, and I guess it, it seems clear too from history that 
the economic powers that control a capitalist system also want a large government at least to work on their behalf. Well, they want to control the government. In some ways, they want a large government. In some ways, they don't. Right. They, I mean, they want to dismantle regulations, for example. I mean, the current administration is always talking about we got rid of unnecessary regulations. Well, who says they're unnecessary? Just because you claim they're unnecessary? Just because the owners of corporations claim that protecting workers in coal mines is, or is unnecessary, that makes them unnecessary? No. But in other ways, they want to have a strong government. They want to have a government that buys a lot of their products. This is mostly seen, especially, say, in the military, where you have the um, um, defense industry, which depends, obviously, on the government to buy their products. So they want the government to have a robust defense because who else is going to buy their products? Or you also have um, open borders, which, uh, like for instance, in, in the U.S. Constitution, we have open borders between states, which requires some kind of regulation from a centralized government. And now that we have um, <laughs> certain sense open borders internationally, it requires some kind of large adjudicating body, which will be tend to be controlled by the most powerful. Yeah, I mean, a lot of a lot of capitalists are really covertly or overtly in favor of open international borders because it brings in um, lots of workers who can work for who are willing to work for very little. And uh, you know, they what the the term, which I think is a socialist term, but it's accurate in this case, what, uh, the industrial army, the idea that uh, you have a lot of uh, potential workers, they're going to be competing for the few jobs that that we're offering them, capitalists are offering them, and therefore they'll be willing to work for less. And um, obviously, uh, free immigration promotes this. Whereas uh, if you if you didn't have much immigration, then you'd be forced to, uh, with a somewhat stable workforce, you'd be forced maybe to pay them more. God forbid, oh no, that would hurt our profits. Right. Which brings it, what we are almost at the top of our hour, but um, to maybe touch on it very briefly, the term progressive, which is, I think is an interesting term because it was once used um, in terms of very capitalist powers that many progressives say they're opposed now. <laughs> So. Well, yeah, I I wrote an article a few years ago about conservative, the word terms conservative and progressive. I said I would like people who say they're conservative to supply a direct object after that term. What are you interested in in conserving? And I would like people who are you call themselves progressives to also supply a direct object. What are you interested in progressing toward? Right. They're they they've kind of become shorthand for for. Uh, intellectual vacuity. They mean really nothing. I mean, progressive is used in, a, in an almost um, interchangeable way with liberalism. Well, liberal, liberal. What, what does it mean? Well, I guess pretty much the same thing. But what, what are you progressing toward? That would be the that would be the first reform I would make. Insist that anyone who calls himself a conservative supplies a direct object, and insist that anyone who calls himself a progressive also supplies a direct object. Right. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, part of, I think part of the difficulty we we're facing, I, I, I see this all the time, we tend to look upon political positions or political philosophy as just a, as a, a weighing between different isms, right? I'm, I'm, I'm conservative here, I'm moderate here, I'm liberal here, and it's, it's, uh, it's one of these things which kind of is, is it, it misses the fact that 
if we're going to propose anything for the social order, it has to be unified by some principle. And as we touched on before, that principle is the common good, properly understood as the is promoting the life of virtue, ultimately. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's good to have a unified uh, philosophy of the social order, and, and Catholics do, or, or can, or should, uh, but liberalism and socialism are not unified philosophies of, social, of the social order. I mean, for example, what, when you look at what purports to be conservatives in the United States, what possible connection could there be with saying abortion is wrong, abortion is the murder of a child, which is true, and I'm against unions. Unions interfere with the, with the working of the market. There's no philosophical connection there. It's purely accidental. And um, similarly with saying, I don't want to, I don't want to bomb, let's, let's take a liberal who says maybe I don't want to bomb children in uh, Iraq or Yemen or wherever, but I have nothing against killing children in the womb. It's illogical. There's no connection there. It's, it's contradictory. Right. So there's these, there's these congeries of positions that historically have gotten associated with each other that have no connection with each other. And um, this is what we're, we're up against. This is why we have these two political cultural blocks that um, are fiercely opposed to each other, but in fact have no consistent ideology and are both simply variations of historic civilizational liberalism. Right. And those blocks are, of course, effects, but they're also causes, right? They're also what? They're, they're, they're effects, but they're also causes. So the reason why I think a lot of times people think they have, if they're uh, opposed to abortion, but also opposed to labor unions, is because their block is opposed to those things. Right. I mean, I've, I've heard of people who, someone who recognized, came to recognize that abortion was the taking of a human life, and then this person thought, oh, I guess I've got to support all these aggressive wars we're raging around the world. Because my block does that. That's crazy. Right. That's crazy. But I don't, you know, the reason that uh, I think it was a woman, the reason that she thought that was because she had no other framework to think about political and social questions. The, the poverty, the intellectual poverty of, um, of the of political discourse in the United States is, is, is just vast, just utterly, uh, utterly overwhelming. Well, that's something we have to work against, and um, that's uh, and also pray, I suppose, about. For the, and basically, what it takes is something. I'm going to say something rather shocking, but it would take the conversion of the United States, which um, we as Catholics need to work for. Oh yes, yes, we need. But one thing, if I may say, one more thing: when we think about the conversion of the United States, it is not just the conversion of individuals that we have to work for, but the conversion of the culture. Because if we have simply converted a lot of Protestants to, and they bring their Protestant intellectual baggage into the church, well, it's going to be good for them because they'll have the sacraments and so on, but it's not going to be good for the intellectual health of the church, intellectual and spiritual health of the church. We need to work for the, for the conversion of the culture as well as the conversion of individuals. That, I think, was the fundamental error of our brethren before the council, many of whom worked zealously to convert individuals, but did not see, or at least not see clearly, the necessity of working to convert the culture. Right. Yes, I, I, we'll have to end there, because we always end our, our broadcast with a reading of the state's gospel. 
So, today's Gospel is taken from the Gospel of Matthew. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to the men of old, you shall not kill, and whoever kills shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother shall be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool shall be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and then remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Make friends quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen. Hello, God's beloved. I'm Annabelle Mosley, author, professor of theology, and host of Then Sings My Soul and Destination Sainthood on WCAT Radio. I invite you to listen in and find inspiration along this sacred journey we're traveling together to make our lives a masterpiece and, with God's grace, become saints. Join me, Annabelle Mosley, for Then Sings My Soul and Destination Sainthood on WCAT Radio. God bless you. Remember, you're never alone. God is always with you. We hope you enjoyed the program and will join us back for another show on WCAT Radio. This is Sebastian Mafut. Good day.